0: Hey, everyone, I'm Sally Abed. I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. This is Groundwork, a podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it.
1: Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace.
0: Welcome. We are so glad to be back for a full season. In this show, we're not just talking about the issues we will bring you stories from the field about the activists who are tackling them. And today, we're starting off with a story that is developing as we speak. Historic protests all around the country. We'll take you into the streets to follow one of the activists who's literally leading the charge here. But first, let's quickly set the scene of what's currently happening.
1: In Israel, we're seeing the rise of extreme right-wing politics in action. Benjamin Netanyahu 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 has once again become the prime minister. And the government he formed is the most religious and far-right coalition the country has ever seen.
0: Leading government members have called to annex the West Bank. Others want to extend the reach of Jewish law. The LGBTQ plus community is under threat. Tensions and violence in the West Bank and Gaza are mounting. And right now, Israel is at a critical juncture. The government is trying to pass legislation that would severely weaken the Supreme Court which, for years, has functioned as the only clear check on the power of the government. Many analysts and ordinary Israelis see this as a brazen power grab by the government and the magic key for Netanyahu to evade a corruption trial that could land him in prison.
1: Meanwhile, the left is searching for its identity. Center and center left wing lawmakers have not been able to form a particularly strong opposition. And while the right was able to gain power by joining forces,
0: the left has been splintering. But on the ground, a resistance is forming.
2: Demonstrators standing in the pouring rain Saturday night among a heavy police presence. Thousands upon thousands crowded train and bus stations.
0: Protesters thronged outside the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. In the past two months, there's been a huge wave of mass protests across the country.
1: The target? Proposed overhaul of Israel's judicial system.
0: Many who oppose the judicial overhaul fear that it will lead to
1: the end of democracy and liberal values.
0: Here. For today's story, we're going to take you to one of these protests, but we're going to meet an activist who sees something else in this moment an opportunity. Yoshi Fields has the story.
3: I meet Iran Nissan at one of the protests that's been happening every Saturday night on Kaplan Street in Tel Aviv. He's 32, and despite the cool evening air, wears just a black t-shirt. People are congregating around him and his big pile of stickers. Everyone loves a sticker. One says, I'm proud to be a leftist. Another, a Mean Girls reference, says, You can sit with us. This is witty.
2: And the other one is the logo of my organization, Mechazkim, with uh, pride colors.
3: Iran is the CEO of Mehaskim, which translates to strengthening. It's an organization that works to unify the left and promote progressive values. For this protest, they've primarily worked behind the scenes, organizing many different NGOs to bring them together for this. They've also leveraged their reach to get as many people to this protest as
2: possible. We built this massive distribution operation, mostly mass uh, WhatsApp groups but also the creation of viral political content just to to hype things up.
3: The hype seems to have worked. It's only 7 p.m., but there are already thousands and thousands of people in the streets. Along the side of the road, people chant on loudspeakers.
2: They're chanting shame, like Game of Thrones vibe, shame.
3: There are people dancing around boomboxes, families,
2: people young and old. So this protest is fueled by anger. Anger against the government trying to attack our basic civil and human liberties.
3: The buzzword today is democracy. But just looking around, it's clear that there are many issues at play here. There are LGBTQ plus flags, Israeli flags, and even some Palestinian flags sprinkled about. Iran says the left can be like a minefield of different ideas and perspectives. But most
2: of these protesters fall into two major camps. So on one hand, focused on the anti-Netanyahu corruption rhetoric. That's Bibi Netanyahu, the prime
3: minister. I see a sign with his picture that reads, Crime Minister. Many in this camp are also worried about the government he now leads bringing about an erosion of democracy or pushing religious laws on secular Jews. According to Iran. This group is...
2: ...exclusively Jewish, and it's not about the long-term political alternative. ...and the other camp... ...and on the other hand, anti-occupation, pro-peace, equality, shared society organization.
3: That camp is summed up nicely by another sign I see nearby. You can't have democracy with occupation.
2: And these two efforts have tension between them.
3: Usually, these two distinct left-wing movements work independently of each other. But if the left and center-left is going to become a force in Israel, he says, these two factions need to come together. That's what his organization is about. Iran is trying to make this everyone's protest. Looking out at the different groups who have come today, he seems satisfied, if a little apprehensive. Diversity, he tells me, should be a strength of the movement, not a
2: problem. And this is the result of the attempt to speak in a, in a diverse, inclusive, but somewhat unified message. And this is also an opportunity for us. We're trying to build a political camp, which is Jewish-Arab.
3: It's worth noting that there are very few Arabs or Palestinians at this protest, but we'll come back to that later. Iran will be leading many of the protesters in a march today. We head to the starting point at Azraeli intersection, weaving our way through the throngs of people.
2: Right now, we are creating the FOMO on one hand, and also the story, the story of this protest, that this is not only 60, 70-year-old people, that this is the defining moment of our generation, that this is our moment right now. Like When you look back on this in 20 years, you'll want to say you're here. Yes.
3: The energy is electric. The news is already reporting that over 120,000 people are here, calling this the largest protest in over a decade.
2: How does that feel? Empowering, inspiring, and I'm scared. All it takes is one police officer that is a hothead to to lose
3: control. Just a week before this one, a protester was hit in the face by a police officer. And with Itamar Ben-Gvir, one of Israel's most infamous far-right figures now in charge of the police, there's fear that might get worse. Iran points to his own sign.
2: This has a large target, like a bullseye, and it says, police water cannon, aim here. They're bringing this truck with this high powerful water cannon and shoot it at the protesters, trying to disperse the crowd. Being
3: a prominent left-wing activist in Israel, though, has always come with risks.
2: Uh, Incitement, death threats. Do you get death threats? Yes, definitely. Yeah, this is the life of of an activist in Israel.
3: He regularly gets messages from individuals, often on Facebook, calling for him to be hanged or shot. What's changing now, Iran says, is that government leaders are also openly attacking the activists on the left, who are calling for
2: peace, democracy, and equality. The masks are off. This government and the ultra-right Jewish supremacists are not hiding. They say that we are traitors, anti-Israeli.
3: Leading members of the government, like Petzalos Motrich, the minister of finance and a minister in the defense ministry, have called the protesters an existential threat that needs to be taken care of. Finally, we make it to the starting point of the march Iran is leading.
2: Yeah, we're in the middle of the Azrieli intersection. It's clogged with tens of thousands of people.
3: The organizers have a permit to hold a few different marches in designated areas. And despite the threat of arrests by the government, Iran tells me his march will at some point veer off the designated route to crisscross the city. It's a way to channel anger, he says, in a non-violent way. It's a way to signal to the country that they have a democratic right to protest and that they will not go along with the illiberal policies the government is trying to pass. At the intersection, we meet up with a group of about seven drummers who take the lead. Iran stands in front to set the pace. And then we're off. Sure enough, after about 30 minutes, the front line suddenly takes a sharp left on another street. Ooh,
2: we just took a turn. Iran's the one pointing to it. Now is the moment we go off script. We're going through the barricade of the police.
3: We leave the route agreed upon with the police, and the pace quickens. All right, now there's now there's a lot of cops. Iran still looks
2: pretty calm. So now we're trying to outsmart and outmaneuver the cops to keep them guessing. There's uh, In the Hong Kong uh, protest, they said, be water. Whenever they block you, just... Take the next right, take the next left.
3: Each time the march goes through a cop barricade, the police set up another one in the next intersection. So far, they seem content to let us continue, but they keep a close eye.
2: We are surrounded by undercover cops.
3: Defying the police barricades, we head down streets packed with cars.
2: So we're going down
3: traffic. All the cars are stopped. We march through Ravine Square, and along the main street of Evang Virol. We're now at Dissingoff Center, uh, the mall right in the middle of the city. We're hitting all the big spots to Tel Aviv tonight. We walk for hours, at times joined by other protesters.
2: There's something beautiful here. We just were uh, joined by students from the Tel Aviv University, from the students' protest, So they're bringing new energy and new volume.
3: At about 10.30, we're nearing Habima Square, close to where the march started. The marchers are still loud, but the numbers have lessened. So far, there have not been any violent confrontations with the police. With spirits high, the team makes the call not to push their luck and instead to finish strong at Habima.
2: Until next week. Yes, they were
3: tired. <laughs> yes. A few days later, I meet Iran at his Mechaskim office in Tel Aviv. How were your
2: legs? I'm good. It was good. It was, they were hurt. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not Superman.
3: He just ended a full day of work, but he still seems energized, happy about how the protest went, and already planning for the next one. I wanted an opportunity to dig into some of the issues we talked about at the protest and hear more about the larger movement he's trying to create. To Iran, The focus needs to be on the conflict between Israeli Jews and their Palestinian neighbors, something that has fallen off the
2: agenda for most Israelis. The pro-peace, anti-occupation, solving the conflict aspect has to be the heart of the solution because this is the heart of the problem. As long as we're running away from speaking about the open wound in Israeli society, we're not going to be able to heal that wound. How he
3: arrived at that clarity is less straightforward. Because his road to activism didn't start with concern for Palestinians at all. He grew up during the Second Intifada, where
2: suicide bombings were a fact of life. Our entire life, we only knew the other side as enemies. When you got up on a bus, you're not just putting your earbuds and going into your phone. You need to look for the suspicious object or the suspicious person because you need to always be uh, vigilant because at any second, things can blow up. Instead, his activism grew out of
3: concern for Jewish Israelis.
2: I am a peace activist because of my military service. I served as a combat soldier in the special forces in the canine unit. I was a dog handler. I had my own personal dog. Her name is Gigi. She was a bomb detection dog. Things started to change for him when his
3: unit was at a memorial event on Yom Hazikaron a day of mourning for all the fallen soldiers
2: and victims of terror attacks. And I remember standing there and we're all 19-year-old, 20-year-old, we're shaved and short hair and wearing our uniforms and wearing our red berets. And in front of us there are these pillars of stone with names of fallen soldiers. And it hit me that this monument goes back to 1948 and the narrative is that each generation needs to pay the price of having a nation home for the Jewish people. And I think I realized the, the repetitiveness of it. So much death and so much destruction and so much violence. The image
3: of a meat grinder came into his head, each generation being fed into it.
2: My brothers and I all served for three years and we are three years apart and we were all combat soldiers. On the week that my oldest brother got out of the army, my second brother got into the army. On the week that he got out of the army, I went. Was this really the only way, he wondered? Were the people in charge really valuing their lives? I believed, and I still believe, that what I was doing was important to save lives, to protect my family, my people, my country. I still believe this, but it was something that really shaped how I looked more critically or cynically even about
3: the army. But the moment he decided to really change course came a little later. After the army, he did what many Israelis do. He traveled, he went to Southeast Asia, he had a great time, he decompressed. After six months, he decided he was ready to come back and continue his life in Israel. He flew the night before his birthday so he could celebrate
2: with family and friends back home. And I take the flight from Hong Kong and I land in Ben-Gurion and I open my backpack and I turn my phone and I'm being swamped, like bombarded by messages from people from my military unit asking me if I heard what happened. And I go into the news sites, apps. His best friend's older brother, a captain in the army, had been shot and
3: killed by Hezbollah militants on the border with Lebanon. The next day, instead of celebrating his birthday, Iran went to a funeral.
2: Seeing there and watching someone that I knew. and his pregnant, now widow, and the family that was broken. And I think that there was a place where I decided I feel the need to do something.
3: He'd grown up hearing that peace was impossible, that Israeli security would be compromised, that Palestinian leadership is not to be trusted. Iran still had those concerns. But at that moment, He also realized that the
2: price of the occupation was too high. The right-wing rhetoric, more settlements and more force, this is not, obviously is not working. And when you look even further, you see that there is no positive, concrete future. This is something that is unsustainable. I want to do something more active in preventing the next casualty, the next war. Like, this needs to stop. After the funeral, he started
3: working as an activist. The more he learned, the more he believed that there was, in fact, another way. And while he'd been told that Palestinians were not willing to accept the existence of Israel, he learned that many Palestinian leaders, including the Palestinian Authority itself, were actively calling for a two-state solution. Eran became the head of the Advocacy and Education Department at Shalom Akshav, Peace Now. He worked in a congressional office in Washington, D.C. But it was only years after he dove into activism that he started thinking about the experience of Palestinians in all this. To do that, he had to go all the way to the U.K. He joined a group called Solutions Not Size, where for the first time, he met a Palestinian and actually had a conversation. They connected
2: around, of all things. Shakespeare. (laughs) Sitting in an English pub, drinking beer and talking about Shakespeare, it's something that I, I, I went back after that week and I realized that I feel more connected to a a Palestinian my age, than with my own political leadership.
3: Today, Iran is trying to make Palestinian rights a front and center issue for the Israeli left. It's not just the right thing to do in terms of values, he says, but it's also critical to the success of the left.
2: If you want to build a political camp, there are many, many more Palestinian citizens of Israel who didn't vote and that are ideologically aligned with us.
3: Palestinian citizens of Israel make up about 20% of the population. Getting the Israeli left and Palestinians to join forces would change the political game in Israel. But today's Jewish left, Iran admits, is not yet a place where many Palestinian citizens feel included or comfortable, nor are they welcomed by many on the Jewish left. One of the main obstacles is messaging. The part of the left that does support Palestinian rights, he says, has traditionally been laser-focused on empathy. It was built on the idea that Jews have empathy for Palestinians.
2: Our parents, maybe they had an encounter with a Palestinian shop owner, or even a friend, or in Gaza, a neighbor. When people talked about the Palestinians, they could say, Ah, I I, I knew a Palestinian. Before the 1990s, there were no walls or checkpoints
3: separating Israelis and Palestinians. It was far from an idyllic reality. But Israelis went to Gaza to buy fish, to Janine, to get their car fixed. And it was not uncommon to find Palestinians at Israeli weddings and vice versa. The profound physical and psychological barriers that now exist, Iran says, means the two societies are too separated from one another to rely on empathy. It's hard to have empathy for someone you don't know or don't even see. Instead, Iran says, at least for now, until the separation can be disrupted, we need to find things that feel more immediate to us and that all the different parts of the left can unify under.
2: The way to incorporate or to move the needle about people accepting Palestinian narrative Palestinian flags, Palestinian messages. It's about saying that we can't talk about democracy without talking about democracy for all. And that's where Mechazkim, Iran's organization,
3: comes in. Mechazkim spreads the message that Israeli democracy has to work for everyone all over. That means those in Israel, regardless of their religious or national identity, as well as the millions of Palestinians living in the occupied territories, who do not have a say in the government that controls their lives. There's a question of how to do this. Two states, one state, confederated states. That question remains unsolved. Iran personally thinks that in order to respect the self-determination on both sides, a two-state solution makes the most sense, at least as a first step. But whatever the solution may look like, Iran knows in his gut, that people need to have rights. Mechaskim's main battleground is the internet. They make memes, TikTok videos, and sometimes they do things IRL, that's in real life. Last year, in 2022, for example, the right wing was pushing to outlaw the Palestinian flag. Mechaskim put up two massive billboards, one just outside of Tel Aviv and one in Nazareth. They both depict two flags, one Palestinian and one Israeli, and said in Hebrew and Arabic,
2: We are meant to live together.
3: The one near Tel Aviv only lasted a couple of hours before the municipality removed it. But it put the issue of Palestinian rights, their rights as a part of Israeli democracy, at the center of the conversation. And Iran says it was also a way to communicate to the Palestinian citizens of Israel that they are not alone in that fight. There are still many on the left who think their movement should be focused on Jewish-Israeli patriotic issues and not about Palestinians. Most people coming to the current protests are here for the anti-corruption, secular freedoms, checks and balances in the democracy. Iran is trying to get them to stay for the Palestinian rights. But it's hard. I pointed out to Iran that a video came out after the protest a few days before of a woman wearing a Palestinian flag on her shoulders
2: being pushed down by a fellow protester. But he says... Our theory of change is that we will reach into the political center and we will pull people to the left. We won't meet them where they are. We will challenge them not to say hurtful things about their identity or to say that their identity is illegitimate or they are criminal or did something wrong, but to say from the positive and recruiting aspect that there isn't such a thing as a partial democracy.
3: Ultimately, Iran says, what we need people to understand is that this is not about saving Israeli democracy. It's about fixing it.
2: Because Israel was born as a flawed democracy. For the first 18 years, Palestinian citizens of Israel were under military administration. In
3: 1966, military rule ended. But just a few months later was the Six-Day War, a war between Israel and a coalition of Arab states. Israel ultimately took over large swaths of territory.
2: And in June of 1967, the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem started. So there was only six months in Israel's history. We didn't hold Palestinians under military occupation. And we can speak about what it says about our democracy.
3: It's a little,
2: like, make America great again, and then it's when, like, well, when, was it, when was it great? Yeah. We need to own our ideology. And when the right wing is going even more to the right, we don't need to chase them. We don't need to try to be a pale shadow of the right wing, trying to compete. Who is more right wing? Who hates Arabs the most? Which is, who is more pro-security? No we need to present an alternative uh but what does that mean because right i feel like so often
3: the left is saying we don't want this judicial reform or we don't want an occupation mm-hmm. and then that's sort of the end and i think also that leads to what you're talking about like a generation without real hope because it's just we're against all these bad things
2: that's true there is the things that unite the anti-bb camp is being anti-bb and there's not a lot of things that they can before. And this is a problem of left-wing worldwide, and some of it in Israel especially, it's because we're too embarrassed, like the political center is embarrassed, to admit that he has flawed values or to own the crimes of the past.
3: Iran believes that the left needs to look squarely at the mistakes of the past, mistakes that fall on the political right and left. For example, the mistreatment of Mizrahi Jews and the religious community, the eradication of Palestinian villages in 1948 and their cover-up. Only then can we start imagining a real
2: future. It's about creating a majority and creating a government that works for all of us, no exceptions. He's seen
3: results, even if it's slow. He tells me a story about a woman he met at a panel recently She had been coming to protests and had initially been confused, if not irritated, by those with anti-occupation signs, saying they didn't belong in a protest about Israeli democracy. After getting to know some of them during a protest, she made a 180 and now supports their cause as part of her own. And Iran has also seen more emphasis on including Palestinians in the general left's movement's messaging.
2: And I can see the changes. I can see from week to week even the posters online have Arabic. Even as
3: Iran works to build a movement that will define his generation, he knows this is a long game. And while stopping the judicial overhaul is very important to him, it's also only part of a much bigger picture.
2: You need to support it with this constant political low-key campaigning. That means that when a politician on our side says something smart, you need to be able to catch it, to distribute it, but also to sustain it and to remind people. And that's what Iran was doing at the
3: protest we were at. Just as we were about to start marching, he opened up a box filled with large candles and started handing them out. Holding a lit candle is a powerful image, he told me. And perhaps just as importantly, he said first-time protesters will like the symbolism. Holding a beacon of light, standing in the darkness flickering, but not going out. This is the kind of small thing that can help grow the movement. In a matter of five minutes, all of the candles were passed out and were lit. A few hundred flames. The air smelled of smoke and dripping wax as they began to march forward.
2: my generation was born during the first intifada grew up during the second intifada and experienced five wars in gaza in the past 14 years and when i speak about my generation i speak about israelis and Palestinians alike this is the soundtrack of our lives and we inherited it from our parents who i judge not fighting hard enough it's our responsibility to end this conflict so our children won't have to live the same experiences that we went through.
3: And this moment, he
2: says, the moment we're in right now, it's... Marbolet, like a vortex. We want this moment to be the opening or the start of a new era about how we talk about this country.
0: Yoshi Fields, one of the producers of our show. You can learn more about Iran Nissan and his organization, Mechaskim, at mechaskim.org and by following Mechaskim on all the social media platforms. Since Yoshi
1: interviewed Iran a few weeks ago, the protest movement has continued to grow, numbers swelling even in the smaller cities across the country. The public outcry led President Yitzhak Herzog to make a national address on TV. He said the country was on the verge
0: of societal and constitutional
2: collapse.
0: As someone who has been in the streets reporting on these protests in Tel Aviv, I've seen the anti-occupation group also getting larger and more vocal. And there have also been more Palestinian speakers at these protests. Last Saturday night, in front of some 130,000 protesters, Palestinian-Israeli activist Ibrahim Abu Ahmed talked about the need for a shared struggle. And he stressed the urgency from his fellow Palestinians, asking, what will we do if the government enacts even more racist laws against us? But there's still not many Palestinians showing up, at least not yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been going to these protests myself. I even spoke at the very first one. These protests can be quite hostile for Palestinians, even for the very few that are participating. Our voice is welcome only if we stick to the script of saving the Supreme Court and not air out our own very complicated relationship with Israeli democracy.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. And I think that's exactly what Iran is trying to change, trying to create a space that supports Palestinians.
1: And I hope we can do that. I hope that more Palestinians are mobilized. However, it is important to understand that there is no button that we can press that summons Palestinians. Whether when we need to vote to save the elections, or protest to save democracy. What we need right now is activists like Iran, who are trying to widen the coalition and invite Palestinians while acknowledging their narrative and their story as the prime victims of this government. If we can tell the story of a wider us, this can truly be a turning point. Not only for this protest, but for Israel-Palestine.
0: Yeah, I think that is the key question. What will this moment bring? Where will this awakening of political activism and democratic emergency take us? Okay, and that's our show. Yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new story. So stay tuned. Groundwork is created and produced by me and Yoshi Fields. The episode was reported and edited by Yoshi, with content editing by Elisheva Goldberg and Joel Shupak. Joel also scored the piece.
1: If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, we need your help in spreading the word. We depend on you to make these stories.
0: So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends.
1: Shukran al Mutaba.
0: This show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace
1: new israel fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive israeli civil society with over 300 million dollars from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations working for change on the ground for over 40 years the alliance for middle east peace is the largest and fastest growing network of palestinian and israeli peace builders you can learn more about them in their websites in nif.org and allmap.org.
0: And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual, binational hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions.
1: This episode was recorded by Uhad Basson in Tel Aviv and the Akavot Studio in Chifa.
0: Make sure to subscribe and thanks for listening.